What if we understand death as a developmental stage, like adolescence or midlife? Dr. Ira Byock is a leading figure in palliative care and hospice in the U.S. He says we lose sight of the remarkable value of the time of life we call dying if we forget that it is always a personal and human event and not just a medical one. So many of us these days catch glimpses of this as we move toward death with loved ones in hospice or with friends or even strangers through the Caring Bridge website. These are often transformative experiences, as dense with repair and celebration as with grief and loss. I don't want to romanticize it. Nobody looks forward to it. But we shouldn't assume that it's only about suffering and its avoidance or its suppression. That in addition to, concurrent with, the unwanted, difficult, physical and emotional, social strains that illness and dying impose... There is also experiences, interactions, opportunities that are of profound value for individuals and all who love them. Contemplating Mortality. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I spoke with Ira Byock in 2012. He's a professor of medicine at Dartmouth and the former director of palliative medicine at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire. He became part of the hospice movement as it entered the U.S. in the 1970s and 80s, dedicated to addressing pain and other suffering with the end of life approaching. Before that, hard as it is to remember now, medicine was dedicated rather single-mindedly to curing, to fixing what was wrong. Ira Bayok defined death then the way he believes many still define it now, as a failure of our bodies and of medicine. I think it surprised me a little bit, I'm not sure why, when I was looking at your trajectory of your life as a physician, that you spent a, a pretty good amount of time as an emergency physician. Is that right? Emergency yes, room? I did. Yeah. Yep. Loved it, too, by the way. Did you? Oh, you bet. Yeah. And it, that's... Uh, very frenetically paced and life on the edge and, I mean, about solving problems. But I wonder if out of that experience, how did that shape this direction your, your medicine has taken? Well, you know, first, um, I took to emergency medicine because I, I, I want to save lives. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I think emergency medicine fit beautifully because, frankly, I'm sort of an adrenaline junkie as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and uh, so that frenetic <laughs> pace that you uh, yeah. talked about, well, that's that, yep, that fits just fine. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. And really, there's nothing more exciting than being able to meet people at the most critical times of their lives right. and, and be of service. Right on the edge there, I guess. Yep. Uh, my career, if there's anything that's held it together. It's walking very close to the edge with other people through these extraordinarily difficult, but frankly, normal times right. and experiences of human life. Right. So it struck me in recent years that there seems to be this just this exponential increase in people who in their families, in their immediate lives, have gone through a hospice experience with, with someone um, and you even have things like Caring Bridge, this website where you know right. pe- people participate. Yeah, I mean those. Right. And but I, it also seems to me that that this has happened in a way pretty rapidly. Maybe it doesn't feel rapid to you, but but that has become normal too in recent years. 
And I wonder if you would tell a little bit of the story as you experienced it of how this whole new approach to end of life kind of grew in your profession. So I, I started my internship uh, after graduating the University of Colorado Medical School, and I, I started an internship in, in family practice. I was going to be a rural family practitioner, and, and this was uh, uh, in 1978. Hospice barely existed in this country. It had mm-hmm. started in the United Kingdom. By Cicely uh, the, Saunders. By and... Cicely Saunders, mm-hmm. you know who was a nurse who hurt her back and became a social worker and and all the time being very concerned how badly Britons were dying. And then uh, she uh, wanted to do something about it and was told to go read medicine. <laughs> and she became a doctor. <laughs> Which uh, there deep... means study medicine, right? Right, yeah. exactly. So, you know, here's this deeply spiritual woman, by the way, on the, you know, in, in addition to sort of creating the interdisciplinary team model of hospice care, she sort of became an interdisciplinary team unto herself during her career. Here I was in in uh, Fresno, California, in a ex- very excellent but boat gray county hospital, trying to care well for people uh, who were uh, many of whom were seriously ill. Meeting them in the emergency department or the ICUs often, and there was a hospice program at a Catholic hospital across town uh, called St. Agnes Hospital, and and uh, I remember the fellow. I, I, I'm pretty sure his name was Mr. Waters. Um, who had a uh, bowel cancer and he had, his abdomen had sort of a uh, surgical wound had broken open and it was just terrible. He, and I was instructed to go discharge him home. Mm, mm. <laughs> and, and I just I had a crisis of conscience. Mm. I couldn't do the discharge. Yeah. And so I, I called up the hospice at St. Ag- Agnes and, and it was the first time anybody from uh, this medical center, the county hospital, had tried to make a referral. Mm. You know, hospice was a countercultural movement at the time, Krista. Yeah. It, you know, it was a social movement, often by nurses and others, a very few doctors, in response to people dying badly, uh, often dying in pain, often in hospitals, too often alone. And it, it has grown up and now been incorporated back into the sort of the, the corpus of medicine. But its roots have been in a, as a countercultural response. And, and we've made a big difference, though we're by no means done. Yeah. And it seems to me that in a sense you, in your work and in your thinking, are wanting to add another layer to that and saying, let's not merely make the end of life as, as pain-free and humane as an experience as possible, but treat dying as a time of value in human life, as a developmental stage. I, I think that is... Another kind of radical idea, countercultural idea, certainly. Uh, it is at the moment, y- yes. A- and yet from my perspective, it's so totally obvious and natural. I mean, you know, Maslow, Piaget, Erickson, they all talk about human development as being a lifelong process. Right, but it's all an upward. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not merely upward, but it's much simpler and easier for us to think of human development in terms of childhood, adolescence, adulthood, right? Accomplishment right. in midlife. You're taking it to you're, – you're working at the edges of that, at the end of that yeah. spectrum. But I'm not asserting anything as much as describing. Uh, it's almost an anthropological fact. Uh, you can read it in people's biographies. Uh, you know, at least some people – even without the sort of assistance that I and, and, and my colleagues can provide, some people do die well. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean that, you know, that phrase dying well, so often people hear that, the word 
well as an adverb, sort of, you know, describing what, how, how well or badly it happened. You know, they died well. It was a good process. But I think the more interesting and accurate way to hear that word is as, is as an adjective. Can someone be well as they die? Mm-hmm. That's really the, the process of human development is to maintain or regain a sense of wellness, of, of sense of integration as a person through each of the critical developmental crises of life. And that's, that's what happens when the toddler becomes a preschooler, when, you know, when, when the uh, young adult leaves home, when people get married, on and on. This developmental crisis, this notion that life is coming to an end, um, has lots of capacity for suffering. But there is obviously, just from an anthropologic perspective, obviously a capacity we have uh, to grow through this experience too. In the current contemporary world, we have so medicalized the end of life, right. and not for by ill intention, but by because of loving intention. We don't want the people we love to die, and and we doctors don't want our patients to die. But inadvertently, we've so medicalized the experience that this notion of wellness seems, uh, to some of my own colleagues, you know, utterly antithetical. What are you talking about, Ira? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, somebody being well. And yet, there it is. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, contemplating mortality with Dr. Ira Bayek. Something that it comes up a lot in my interviews and has come up again recently and is that you're know, making a distinction between healing and curing and that understanding healing as something that can happen without perfection Certainly. and it seems to me you're kind of taking that to another to to what it looks like when you're talking about dying dying well i i think it's it incorporates this notion that that which is wounded are perhaps our relationships, um, most of which, you know, there's not been a perfect relationship in the history of the planet. Yeah. Uh, even the most close and loving relationships uh, often are, are, you know, have histories of hurt feelings or misunderstandings and sometimes real transgressions. Yeah. Uh, so healing is, is certainly a, a part of it. I, I do think, though, that even that notion of healing ties us in some way to a pathologic framework, Hmm. that really human development, the sense of being able to grow, is larger still. It encompasses the healing. It encompasses the crises, all of our doubts or, you know, our insecurities, but it it allows us to achieve a sense of fuller integration, maybe as as the developmentalist Maslow would say, of Mm self-actualization, that I I really find uh, is, is helpful. And you have coined a phrase, the, the four things that matter most. You've identified four statements, uh, states of being. I don't know how would you say it. That, that, uh, <laughs> I, I've just become the Johnny Appleseed of these things, by the way. I didn't invent yeah, them. Yeah, right. But they've been, in, they've been in our culture and certainly within uh, uh, hospice and palliative medicine practice. Uh, so many uh, clinicians have used these four things, okay. which, which are actually just 11 words, four sentences. Yeah, tiny sentences. <laughs> Please forgive me. I forgive you. 
thank you, I love you. Those four things, uh, I still use them in my clinical practice quite frequently. People often say, I don't know, I don't know how to do this, Dr. Bayak. I don't know, you know, I don't know what to say to people. If you're really stuck <laughs> at any time, mm-hmm. um, those four things are a nice way to, to start. Whether you use them verbatim, and I have had people use them verbatim, but, but make them your own. But, you know, when I think about, um, again, these are 11 words, but as you say, no relationship is perfect, and many relationships are troubled, right? Many relationships, especially the relationships that we have with our families. And these sentences, please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, I love you. Um, In a lot of families, there's going to be real work involved in being able to say those words and mean them. Mm. They're not words. Mm -hmm. It it almost you know when as I really looked at them and thought about them and you know even thought about my family, um, I I wondered if if there's something about being in that extreme moment of life as you say normal, but ultimate, that creates an opening for some people to do that work to say those words where it hasn't been possible in other points of the lifespan. Exactly. Exactly. It, it shakes us free of the veneers, the layers of, of personality, of who we think we are, of protecting ourselves. Exactly. You know when the times uh, are that you can say those things most easily? Um, when you've just slammed on the brakes and just <laughs> narrowly missed getting killed and you're, you're shaking like a leaf and you are in a cold sweat and everything just almost ended. Yeah. Pick up your cell phone. I tell you, it becomes really easy to call your spouse or your, you know, your mother or father or your child and just say those things. Mm-hmm. You know, it just shakes us, us free. Uh, I mean, I think of the people I've met and, and this notion that uh, life-threatening illness or injury um, in a sense, makes Buddhists of us all. <laughs> you know, I yes. mean, it really wakes Oops. us from this sort of illusion of immortality. Right, right. You know, from the moment we get that diagnosis, all of a sudden, oh my, has life changed. And it makes that ultimate significance of this moment really come Here and home. now. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and frankly, it throws... In sharp contrast, how important we are to one another, how much uh, we care about one another. Yeah. That's that the connections between people are the things that matter most. If, if, if one were to ask somebody who's being wheeled into uh, transplant surgery, you know, heart or liver transplant surgery, or, or someone who's facing chemotherapy for the third or fourth time, um, what matters most? Uh, trust me, the answers will always include the names of people they love. You know, the, what's filling our, our Palm Pilots or our iPhone calendars starts to drop away really fast w- when someone we love is seriously ill. But, you know, there's something else going on here that, um, again, in this extreme normal moment, the real meaning of those words and phrases and actions, forgiveness— and love and gratitude 
they take on more complexity, right? And, you know, in a way you say it's, you know, those are the words that come out of your mouth, but they mean something different. I, mm. I love this quote that you have of Paul Tillich. Um, forgiveness, of course, it's really difficult, but on the other hand, it's an easy word. Forgive and forget, right? We, ha- we also have really superficial associations with it. But here's this Tillich quote that gets at the complexity of this when it happens, as you see it, when people are dying well. You know, you say, forgiving presupposes remembering, and it creates a forgetting, not in the natural way we forget yesterday's weather, but in the way of the great in spite of that says, I forget, although I remember. Without Mm. this kind of forgetting, no human relationship can endure healthy. Isn't that incredible? You know, Lily Tomlin, another philosopher in our time, <laughs> said <laughs> that, that forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. Mm. You know, it's, she's nailed it. I mean, it involves accepting that the past cannot be changed while recognizing that it need not control our future. Yeah. Really and truly, you know, it's, I think there's great wisdom in in life and in, oh, certainly in being a clinician, this notion that the choice is between protecting ourselves, which is, you know, out of fear, or keeping our hearts open. Fear of being hurt, the fear of being used up, the fear of being, of failing, of of being inadequate, of fear of dying. Um, All of those rational, by the way, fears. Some of that reflexive recoiling or protectiveness is, is really uh, truly reflexive, embedded within us. Yes. But we have a choice to keep our hearts open. And it's so interesting that in so doing, often what we do is so much more rich and, and effective and promoting of you know, growth for all of us. You're saying we need to seize death as a part of life, as an opportunity for some of this incredible work to happen. But let's talk about, and I think you just started this direction, why that's so hard, why we resist this. Um, So I think it's complex, and I don't think we should blame ourselves or really anyone for this uh, predicament. Mm -hmm. We simply live in utterly unprecedented times. You know, everybody uh, who thinks about this or writes about this says, well, it it was different in in previous times and death was natural and people died at home and they died with their loved ones around them. And And women died in childbirth. I mean, we forget that. I mean, so many more mundane things coming down with a cold or having babies. Yeah. Right. I mean, serious infections, uh, um, a broken bone where a piece of bone stuck through the skin, you know, you know a yeah. compound fracture. These days, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. Uh, easy for me to say, but, you yeah. know, yeah. We, we fix these things yeah. and people go on to live. Not so much in previous times. So we live in unprecedented times and we have 
the ability to, to save and extend life. And that's a remarkable, wonderful, good thing. Life is precious. And we're all going to be dead a long time. <laughs> you know, there's no reason to rush it. Right. So, you know, life is precious. And people who are seriously ill, by and large, don't want to be dead. And their loved ones don't want them to die. And we have this huge, wonderful set of tools and scientific advances and technology to keep people alive. I think we need to use and celebrate all of that. We also, however, need to hold in our consciousness and certainly in our culture's consciousness that we have yet to make even one person immortal. And this is a cultural, new cultural challenge for unprecedented times. We have to balance these two. We have to celebrate life and, and extend life, but also somehow factor in what it means these days to, to frankly die well. Uh, and how can we support even our families in this experience? Because, you know, one person gets a diagnosis and a family gets an illness. Yeah. How do we do this well? So something else that I became aware of during a pretty formative period, not that long, but where I worked actually as a chaplain on a, a floor for Alzheimer's patients at a home and hospital for the elderly, which was really an amazing transformative thing for me. But one I'll thing bet. experienced there is the will to live as this mysterious, fierce, right, this inborn thing in us. I mean, I saw people who had lost everything. But, you know, it's almost like the will to live, which was almost like a life force of its own. Uh, so, I mean, it is, is that, it is inherent. It, I mean, right. it's, it's embedded within our genome. And so that colludes with the more and more we're able to do with medicine. And, I mean, isn't there something, there's something beautiful and just incredible about it, even when you see that it stops making sense in all it, its fierceness? It, no question. And, and this is part of the um, embedded, inherent uh, challenges, the, the complexity of the gifts of being human. Yeah. No other species that we know of can contemplate the end of life, their, their own death. They can react to it um, reflexively, hormonally, neurochemically, but, but to contemplate uh, mortality, that's, that's both a gift and a curse that we've been given, I, I think, uniquely. So I think the question then becomes, and the other thing that, that we all know these days is we know people who have beat the odds, right? We know the people who, where cancer had spread throughout their body and they took the aggressive treatment and they lived and we're glad they lived. So I wonder if there is a story that comes to you now, something that is fresh in your mind about that kind of illustrates, you know, how that line gets crossed and, and why. Um. I recently helped counsel a couple whose four-year-old daughter is um, terminally ill, but she's doing fine. <laughs> she's, she's happy. She's growing. She's playing. She simply has a, uh, a cancer, a, a blood disorder that um, is not going to get fixed. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the mind almost whites out in, in sheer... 
um, terror and unacceptability of this. But the fact is that it's really uh, not a question of whether she's going to die. She is going to die. To a certain extent, it's a matter of when, because mm -hmm. there are ways of keeping her alive through medical technology. But more profoundly, it's a matter of how. How is this going to happen? How can this most unacceptable of things happen so that their dear child is comfortable, um, isn't suffering, and is frankly pampered, honored, celebrated um, during the last parts of her life, the last you know, days, hmm. hours, minutes of her life. It's important to acknowledge that dying isn't medical. Right. It's personal. Right. right? And w it's so easy to lose that. W when somebody is seriously ill, for the very best reasons, we, we, and I did this in the emergency department all the time, we, we, we tacitly say to people, put your life on hold. Mm -hmm. You know, we got important work to do here. You're having mm -hmm. a heart attack. When somebody is at the end of a serious, you know, uh, life-limiting illness, they can't put their lives on hold. This is their life. And while medicine has a lot to offer, yeah. uh, none of us should be sort of seduced into thinking that this is a medical experience. It, it is a personal experience that has serious medical needs. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's not embracing it. It's, a, it's not a, it doesn't feel like a, um, you know, light and, and kind of right, uh, right. new agey experience. It, it's the most gritty, difficult, unwanted uh, experience, and yet so profoundly personal and, and human. Ira Bayak has served as an advisor for a project of our public radio colleagues at StoryCorps. StoryCorps' legacy project creates opportunities for recorded conversations between family members as the end of life approaches. Here's part of one of those from New London, New Hampshire. I'm David Plant. I'm almost 81 years old, and I'm about to speak to my son, Frank. My name's Frank Lilly. Difference in names is because David is my stepfather, but I certainly consider him my father. So you first met me when I was about nine or 10 years old when you married my mother. You know, I was thinking the other day how much I've looked up to you and used you as an example. And I realized that's what I'm doing right now again. I'm watching all of this and I'm trying to learn. How are you handling all this? Well, I think in a year from now, I won't be here. I'm not anxious about whether there's a heaven or whether there's music or clouds or whatever. I'm more anxious about the end-of-life journey. I want it to be quiet, contemplative, and calm. For me, dying, it's very enlightening and certainly rewarding. Look at the opportunity to talk, for example. It's just incredible. We would coast around having a drink before dinner, never get down to anything that was serious. That's exactly right. What would you like to see after you go? I mean, what is your legacy? I would just like people to believe 
that humility, listening to the other person and trying to understand the other person, and forgiving are important. Find more about this show and about StoryCorps' legacy project at onbeing.org. Coming up, Ira Byock's sense that mortality is a reminder of the inherent spirituality of life, whether we are religious or not. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Dr. Ira Byock, we're contemplating the time of life we call dying. We're exploring how his understanding of mortality has evolved as he's helped grow the field of palliative and hospice care in the U.S., He's come to see dying, potentially, to be a developmental stage of learning and repairing relationships, of completing life for many people and their loved ones. You had just told a story about two parents and their, their four-year-old daughter who was dying. And I, I, I want to ask kind of an, a question from a slightly different angle. So this term dying well, mm. as you know, is doesn't really sit easily in mm. 21st century vocabularies or imaginations for, for many reasons. So, so I wonder, again, if you would tell me a story, you know, who comes to mind right now, just today as we're talking, to give me a picture of someone who has died well, what that looks like, what are the contours of that? On, on the way over to the studio, I was actually thinking about uh, a woman I call Alice. It's a pseudonym, but mm-hmm. she was very real, a 47-year-old uh, woman with an advanced cancer um, who was admitted to the hospital. She knew she was facing the end of life, but you know, uh, expected that she had several months to live. And suddenly her right leg became uh, blue and and cold and painful, and she came to the hospital and ended up having a procedure to take a clot out of her leg. I visited her on a Sunday uh, making rounds. I was alone uh, making rounds for our team in in the hospital. And as I came into the room, uh, I knew her from before. As I came into the room, we talked about, you know, her pain and her bowels and the usual physiologic stuff we needed to do. And then I noticed this book of poems at her bedside, and and we it was there was roomy poems, and we <laughs> read a couple together. Uh, and then I just on a whim I shared one of my favorite poems uh, from memory with her. Uh, I'll, I'll actually re- yeah. I'll read it, yeah, please, uh, or recite it. Really, um, you do not need to leave your room. Remain sitting at your table and listen. Do not even listen. Simply wait. Do not even wait. Be quiet, still, and solitary. The world will freely offer itself to you to be unmasked. It has no choice. It will roll in ecstasy at your feet. And I asked Alice if she had any idea who, who the poet was. And she went through, you know, she figured it wasn't roomy because I would have told her that. And, <laughs> you know, she, she, she went through Rilke and a few others. And, and I said, no, it's actually Franz Kafka. 
And here we had this great conversation because here Kafka, you know, is the quintessential existentialist who portrays the universe as cold and impersonal. And yet here was this remarkably spiritual Mm. poem. Mm. And we ended up talking about fractiles and and, uh, chaos theory and randomness. and, and, And Alice began to talk about feeling whole even in the face of, of loss. Uh, as we were visiting and, we, and in the midst of this reverie, in walks uh, her husband, Tony, uh, and they had actually um, fallen in love after her diagnosis or, or, oh, or really came together after her diagnosis and had been together for several years. And it was this remarkable love story. As I left her room that morning, I have this image of her and Tony sort of beaming into each other's eyes. And, and, and for me, that is this notion of wellness, that they have – there's two mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. were going on. Dying and being well at the same time. Actually, yes. exactly. Becoming, mm-hmm. in a sense, more well during this process. Right. And, and also there was this sense – and I tell this story sometimes about uh, – because it epitomizes to me the, the sense of um, healthy defiance, I, I would say almost, uh, that they evinced um, this notion that their love for one another in the face of mortality was a statement that love is stronger than death. Hmm. You know, even death can't take this from us. So it's a very th- – that for me is an example, one of many, frankly, of almost the fulfillment of the human condition in the face of death. Quite a remarkable uh, example from my own personal and professional uh, life. But it's a different form of defiance we're all very familiar with, the defiance that medicine will take us to the ultimate lengths to beat the odds, right, to beat the illness to the very end. It's a completely different. It's defiance, but it's yes. has a completely different. I don't different think emphasis. they're mutually exclusive. Okay, I, I, I really, maybe right. I want to so have it all, but then we boomers them. do. Yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> I, I, I want to defy death as long as it makes sense to do so. I, I, I think medicine is awesome. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just phenomenal what we can do these days, and and we should do it when we can. But doing it as well as we can, really and truly committing to the best possible care for each person um, must not exclude the reality of death. Mm-hmm. That has to be brought into balance. We, we have and. to struggle with it all. It is both and. That's correct. So absolutely, I want to make the best of disease treatments and living as long and as well as possible. But I also want to leave this life with nothing left undone, having enjoyed, you know, enriched, loved honored and celebrated all of life. That, mm-hmm. I think, is, is our, our birthright, too. You have also said that one thing mortality teaches is that human life is inherently spiritual, whether or not a person has a religion. Tell me about that. Well, I, th- I think the confrontation with death lays bare the, the spiritual core of the human condition. I mean, death acts as like a hot wind to really strip away uh, any pretense a person has, any sense of self, and really exposes our personal essence, our elemental core. Hmm. Um, What I call spiritual is our innate response to um, the 
at once awe-inspiring and terrifying fact of human life, our experience of life in this universe. Um, you know, in many ways, we're, we're just all uh, hurtling through deep space on this tiny rock called Earth. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, really, think about it. Ex you know, protected from the frigid galactic void of, of the Milky Way but by a blanket of air. Mm. You know, held on the surface by gravity, whatever the heck that is. <laughs> mm. and, and here we are. And really, um, for me, that very image that I, I have um, helps me come to the confrontation or other people's confrontation and the clinical encounter, if you will, with a person, seeing the other person as just another being. And here we are. That for human beings is really uh, a, a confrontation with the spiritual. Mm. It calls into question, you know, what is the meaning of this life? and often draws us to a sense of some connection to something larger than ourselves, which will endure. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Dr. Ira Bayak on Dying Well. I suddenly was thinking, as you described that, that incredible image of us as these beings in time and space, uh, that obviously I haven't gone through the experience of dying, but again and again in a lifetime, you hit these moments uh, where you realize you're completely unprepared, and it's like you're walking on a frontier. I mean, I think the first few days of having a new baby home with you. Yes. It's like yes. somebody let me bring this thing home. Right? Yes. And every minute is an adventure. And Absolutely. you are inventing <laughs> it what to do. And and it is. It's about it's about life. But uh I mean, I think there are moments in every relationship that are like that and, and you can crash or you can learn something completely startlingly new. And I guess you're you're talking about death being one of those moments, one of those times too. I, I think you're absolutely correct. It's exactly what we what we were talking about. You know, the doors of perception are thrown open uh, at times of birth and at times of death. For me, that's the sacred. The, the sacred isn't a concept. It's not a philosophy. It's this visceral experience of rightness in the moment, this unbelievable sense of privilege, S sitting with somebody at their bedside, you know, standing as a, 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 in back of a room with a, with a family surrounding someone who they love who's dying. Um, at the moment, there is this rightness, this sense of resolution of all contradiction hmm. that I think we human beings somehow label the sacred. You know, it's this experience of being infinitesimal and yet being infinite, utterly vulnerable and yet unshakably confident. Yes, that's the thing. The resolution comes in that moment of complete vulnerability. That's what's so shocking about it. It's unbelievable. You know, we're utterly insignificant and yet infinitely meaningful <laughs> right then. Yeah. It's just such a gift. All right. 
And that's part of what I mean by saying that that really this confrontation with death in so many ways re- really uh, exposes the, the spiritual essence, the elemental core of, of what it means to be human. Hmm. So recently I was listening to a the BBC, actually, as I was preparing to interview you, and <laughs> there was a report about apparently there's a worm, an inchworm, I think, that is apparently immortal, that it regenerates across. Of course, they can't prove this because nobody has known the same inchworm for eternity, uh-huh. but um, <laughs> they think that it regenerates both at the head and the tail. And and this got me thinking about a larger question in terms of what you're doing as you say, you're not pushing against scientific advance. You are a champion of scientific advance. You're in there with it, with medicine getting better and you better. Bet. Yeah, you bet. But then this both and that you're championing—that there also has to be a space, almost a sacred space in there for dying well when that's what's happening. Um, I wonder if you feel like like the struggle, you know. <laughs> It may even get more intense because one thing we know about science and medicine is that they will keep learning things. Right. You know, is there is there a downside of success in that medicine gets better and better, technology advances, and will that continue to put pressure against this work of learning to die well? Do you think about this? Yes, it will. Yes, it will. It's time for us to struggle and wrestle and grow the rest of the way up as a culture. These are unprecedented times, and the, and the advances will keep on coming. You can, I guarantee it. Um, it's unlikely we're going to make anyone immortal. Right. Um, and, and you but know we what? we will study if, that inchworm. <laughs> right. And, but yeah. even if we did, I mean, you know, people tell me about their grandfather who, who you know, uh, they say he's like a cat with nine lives, you know, Doc. You never know. Well, that may be the case, but have you ever met one of those cats with nine lives? They tend to be bedraggled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they, they're limping. They've got patches of fur missing. <laughs> they got an right. ear that's all down. You know, it's not as if we escape all the consequences of uh, living with the, with frankly, the gift of what chronic illness is, as compared to having died earlier. Right. So these issues will continue to get more complicated and the questions will get ever more uh, challenging. And, and frankly, we have to, as a community, as a society and culture, uh, have ongoing conversations involving medicine and nursing and social work, but also the clergy and theologians, theologians rather, and philosophers – we have to have this ongoing conversation um, stipulating that, frankly, we're all pro-life. I mean, you know, sm- small case P, <laughs> pro-life. Mm-hmm. We're all pro-dignity, frankly. This is not – this. there's not really a lot of cultural conflict when you get down to it. But we're so afraid to talk about these things that we haven't developed kind of a more mature, um, fitting concept of what it means to die well – today in, in the world of antibiotics and miracle surgeries and, and the Magellan robotic operator and, and genomics and protonomics and antivirals and all of that. Right. There's an amazing quote um, in some, one of the pieces, one of your books, I think, um, from Anthony Perkins. I have learned 
more about love, selflessness, and human understanding from the people I have met in this great adventure in the world of AIDS than I ever did in the cutthroat, competitive world in which I spent my life. I mean, that's Isn't that beautiful. It's beautiful, and it's a very dramatic. Uh, it just dramatically speaks to this idea that you present that this time of life too can be its own unique adventure. Right. I mean, here he was, you know, well-known, accomplished, wealthy, successful in so many ways, and yet to say he learned more living with and dying from this dreaded disease. He chose those words carefully. (laughs) You know, that's, that's really quite remarkable. And it does, in fact, I think, point us back to, to um, our assumptions about this time of life we call dying. It, it isn't easy. I don't want to romanticize it. It's, it's no fun. Nobody looks forward to it. Yeah. Um, it's good to, to be thinking about life and, and living as long as well as possible. But we shouldn't assume that it's only about suffering and its avoidance or its suppression. That in addition to, concurrent with the unwanted, difficult, physical and emotional, social strains that illness and dying impose, there is also experiences, interactions, opportunities that are of profound value for for individuals and all who love them. Ira Bayak is a professor of medicine at Dartmouth and former director of palliative medicine at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in Lebanon, New Hampshire. His books include Dying Well, Peace and Possibilities at the End of Life. And here in closing is part of another conversation recorded by StoryCorps, this one between Danny and Annie Parasa in Brooklyn, New York in 2006. Danny passed away eight days later. The illness is not hard on me. It's just, you know, the finality of it. And him, he goes along like a trooper. The deal of it is, we try to give each other hope, and not hope that I'll live, hope that she'll do well after I pass, hope that people will support her, hope that if she meets somebody and likes him, she marries him. You know, he has everything planned, you know. I'm working on it. The other day, I said, who's going to walk down the aisle with you behind the casket? You know, the supporter. And she said, nobody. I walked in with you alone. I'm walking out with you alone. Mm-hmm. There's a thing in life where you have to come to terms with dying. Well, I haven't come to terms with dying yet. I want to come to terms with being sure that you understand that my love for you up to this point was as much as it could be and will be as much as it could be for eternity. Do you have the Valentine's Day letter there? Yeah. My dearest wife, this is a very special day. It is a day on which we share our love, which still grows after all these years. Now that love is being used by us to sustain us through these hard times. All my love, all my days, and more. Happy Valentine's Day. 
She lights up the room in the morning when she tells me to put both hands on her shoulders so she can support me. She lights up my life when she says to me at night, wouldn't you like a little ice cream? Or would you please drink more water? I mean, those aren't very romantic things to say, but they stir my heart. Conversation with Ira Bayak reminded me of an interview I did years ago with the medical anthropologist and Buddhist teacher Joan Halifax. She created the Project on Being with Dying. At the Upaya Zen Center in New Mexico, she trains doctors, nurses, social workers, and other health care providers on how to listen to the inner life of people in the time of dying. And there's poetry in that show, too, including these lines from Mary Oliver's poem, When Death Comes. When it's over, I want to say, all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. You can hear that 2005 show on our website, onbeing.org. On Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash onbeing. On Twitter, you can follow our show at beingtweets. And sign up for our weekly email newsletter, which is a window into everything we do, including special features online. Find that newsletter link on every page at onbeing.org. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Michael Alcesser, and Megan Bender. Special thanks this week to our friends at StoryCorps. On Being is a Krista Tippett public production distributed by American Public Media and is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, playwright and social activist Eve Ensler. This woman, best known for her play, The Vagina Monologues, describes how she only began to inhabit her own body after a diagnosis of cancer. When people would talk to me about, you're going to beat this, yeah. or you're going to slay cancer, or you're gonna, I, I would say, what I'm going to do, hopefully, is become more of who I'm, I was meant to be. And cancer has given me this huge, dramatic, turbulent opportunity to do that. That's the next On Being. Please join us.